How does the Bible speak to itself? This is the Bible Reset Podcast brought to you by the Institute for Bible Reading. Goodwin here with Paul Kennedy and Glenn Powell. Today on our little mini tour of the types of biblical literature, we're, we've taken a look at two of the apocalyptic books in the Bible, Daniel and Revelation, and now we're going to turn our attention to the Bible's wisdom literature. Kind of like apocalypse, wisdom isn't really a writing category that we have in modern Western culture. I mean, we have plenty of self-help books and self-help materials, and then Pithy sayings, kind of like the early bird gets the worm, but nothing quite like the extensive wisdom literature that's in the Bible. So today we're diving into the three wisdom books of the First Testament, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job, to see what they have in common and also where they're different. Yeah, thanks, Alex. And um, indeed, they have commonalities and they have differences in in many ways. Um, Wisdom literature is less of a literary genre and kind of a, a series of exposés on how we look at the world in a particular way. And, you know, we'll get into that in, uh, in just a second. But in fact, you know, the, the various wisdom books um, each have their own different style and tone and, and flavor. So the book of Proverbs consists mostly of two-line sayings of practical insights and, uh, and, and advice. And, you know, if you've read any of, you know, Benjamin Franklin from Poor Richard's Almanac, you know, things like three may keep a secret. If two of them are dead, uh, Proverbs kind of feels that way. Of course, Proverbs, though, uh, are inspired writings. Um, Ecclesiastes is kind of a, a philosophical um, combination of short messages. There's some poetry in it. There's some prose. And it's it's really a book of struggle about how to find meaning in the world. And if you've never read it, be prepared for something that's a bit dark and, uh, and pessimistic. And there are people that oftentimes read it and say, how in the world did that make it you know, into the, into the canon? Job, uh, the third um, writing that we're going to look at, is kind of a feisty, poetic uh, dispute between Job and his uh, so-called friends. Um, and they're asking this, you know, huge question um, in a world of pain. Um, and I think the way it's stated is that, you know, troubles come as the sparks fly upward or something like that is the line from Job. In other words, the world is riddled with pain. And so how do we explain that reality uh, along with the reality, you know, of a just God? Um, and then there is a wisdom um, writing, a wisdom, wisdom literature in the New Testament, it's the book of James. And it, it's a little different as well. It comes in a letter form, but kind of like Proverbs made up of pithy sayings and short reflections, um, urging the people of that day to pursue a life of goodness and of temperance and, and justice. Uh, a great book, um, the stuff that it says about the tongue uh, and how we talk is worth the price of the book. Yeah, 
Great. So the reason all these different books are called wisdom, if they're not the same literary genre, is that they all assume a crucial element of the biblical narrative. I think it's the core point, the first point, um, the reality of God being the creator and sustainer of all things. And then they explore what it means to live well in light of that. So God is the one who started this whole project, the world and the story that we live in. And he's the one who stayed intimately involved to preserve and carry them both. So if that point is true, then it would make sense that he would make the world a place where following his wisdom would help you get along well. So the structure of the world, the way it works, should reinforce good ways of living. That's kind of an outcome of a good doctrine of creation, I think. This is the starting point of the Bible's wisdom. It's not some standalone collection of generally helpful tips for living. It is rather intimately tied to the bigger story of God and the world. Yeah, Glenn, that's, and that's a good place to start, but I don't think it's a good place to end, right? There's, right. there's kind of a, a pretty big problem in that equation, which is, of course, that the created order of things is full of rebellion and uh, it's fractured, right? Like there's this major problem in the original intention that you just outlined. And there's fractures affecting the creation in all sorts of devastating ways, which means that it's it's not quite enough to just say something as straightforward as, you know, live according to God's wisdom and everything will go great for you in this life. These forces of chaos are um, just disrupting things. And so this link between wisdom and the flourishing life in creation is challenging and complicated. Uh, much more so than it was originally intended, I would say. So I think the wisdom writing in the Bible takes account of this complex scenario. Like it knows what's happened in the story. So it's open about the real struggle that the people now have to go through. And our lives are fraught with stress and anxiety and danger. So rather than just addressing this reality in kind of a one-dimensional, super prescriptive manner, I guess I would say, um, the Bible's wisdom actually offers a conversation about this. Yeah, that's great, Alex. And, um, you know, the, the, one of the things that's unique about this wisdom literature is you read it and the words are like powerful. Um, that's true in some ways of all of the Bible's words, but some more than others. But these are powerful words and it fits into, you know, God's plan for taking words, the sacred words, and, and, and they're a speech act, which means that the words do something in the world. They're active. They bring transformation. And, um, but as we're going to see, biblical wisdom is meant not only to reveal things to us and teach things to us, but they're also there to help us process and to struggle and to wrestle honestly um, with the question of how to live um, in a good world that, as you said, Alex, is really now bent out of shape. So, you know, you've heard us say before that the Bible is not a flat book. And part of what that means is that there actually can be dialogue within the pages of the Bible itself. And so life in our world is complex. And in the Bible is fully attuned to this, actually much more than our hymnody, I think. 
And so there's real sophistication, you know, that's built into these, these three books. And um, so since the Bible is a collection of books, not just one book, it can actually accommodate more than one perspective. And we see that throughout in the foretellings of the story of Jesus. We have two major histories of Israel. And now we have before us these three First Testament wisdom books. And so the Bible is really no stranger to having more than one angle on things. And that actually make, may make some of our, our listeners um, um, a bit uneasy. But as we're going to see, that's exactly the way it is. Yeah. yeah. So here's kind of how that I think the, the brief outline of that conversation goes. Um, we'll see Proverbs kind of making the foundational case for creational wisdom. That is the wisdom God has embedded into the world and that we can discover by observation and practice. But then the book of Ecclesiastes talks back, if you will, to Proverbs. And then the book of Job goes even farther, questioning even how much we can know about what God is even doing in the world. How is he running things? So it's this three-part conversation within the pages of the Bible itself. Yep, which is so interesting to me. And, uh, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. So, so I think in order to fully understand the, the full-orbed wisdom literature in the Bible, we need to follow this conversation that's happening inside the Bible. And we'll do that by getting a little bit more clarity on the key messages of each of the three wisdom books in the First Testament. Again, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. So. Let's go ahead and start with Proverbs. Okay, so many ancient Near Eastern cultures actually valued and wrote down their collection of wisdom. We have examples of this from the cultures and nations that surround Israel. So it's not like wisdom was a unique thing just to Israel. Um, a lot of that wisdom, based as it was on observation of life in the real world, overlap with the wisdom known by God's people. We find some of the Proverbs from Egypt, for instance match those that we see in the book of Proverbs. But one big distinctive of wisdom in Israel was its relationship to Yahweh. Respect and reverence for the Lord was considered the first step of real wisdom. So there's a covenant theology that informs Israel's wisdom. Israel knew that God wanted his creatures to flourish in his world. They also knew that real understanding or knowledge of how the world works can help lead to that good life. So God's ancient people wove collections of wise, practical sayings right into their scripture collection. So the book of Proverbs is this reality-based group of sayings. After opening with an extended section of poems singing the praises of wisdom, which interestingly and significantly, I would say, is personified as a woman, the bulk of this book contrasts or consists rather uh, of that most basic element of biblical poetry, that is two-line parallelism. This is just like what we see in the songbooks and the prophets. Proverbs are built on the way these two lines of poetry interact with each other. That's kind of the foundational thing of biblical poetry, which, by the way, is a topic we're going to talk about later in this series, is how the poetry of the Bible works as a literary genre. But Proverbs embodies this right off the bat. Yeah, so I think it's it's critical, Glenn and Alex, when we open the book of Proverbs, that we are clear about what this literature is not. 
Um, this is not a series of promises. And we could each tell multiple stories of people that treated it in this way. And um, it actually produced real damage. Um, these aren't these are different than the prophetical oracles. They're different than laments, songs of praise, and, and they have a particular character, which we might say in summary is this, these, this is a book to help people understand reality. This is how the world works, or at least how it's supposed to work or how it works most of the time. And so many of these proverbs are, are fairly simple observations about everyday life. Um, so being familiar with them can help you know what to do and how to navigate life, uh, especially uh, relationships with others. So here's a couple of examples. An offended friend is harder to win back than a fortified city. Arguments separate friends like a gate locked with bars. Oh, that's powerful stuff. Um, after three years of um, of uh, relationships being shredded, and we should be careful about what we say and realize that once we've done damage, you know, it's hard to get the relationship back. Here's another better a dry crust eaten in peace than a house filled with feasting and and conflict the, a value laden statement and then you have others that are they're more like commands or exhortations urging us to actively make wise choices if you do these things um, then life will go more smoothly for you um, here's a couple intelligent people are always ready to learn their ears are open for wisdom um, Avoid a fight. Avoiding a fight is a mark of honor. Only fools insist on, on quarreling. And so, you know, um, the wise person, Solomon says, is somebody who's walking around in the world with their antennas up and they're paying attention. I think the avant-garde word today is, is mindfulness. And they are aware of these words of wisdom, and they seek to get onto these paths of righteousness and good living. And, and honestly, the, the book is kind of dualistic in nature. And so you have you know, two options. Here are the two options. On the one hand, you know, um, if you follow God's commands and his precepts, these will lead to a successful life and you will thrive in God's world. If on the other hand, um, if you're lazy and you use poor judgment and you follow the other path, the path of foolishness, um, then you're going to fail in life. And so these two paths uh, kind of present, again, these two dualistic choices, a life of wisdom, which leads to life or a life of foolishness, which leads to death. Yeah. Yeah, I think you really got at the core of things there, Paul, that it's just so bold and simple and straightforward in Proverbs. You know, godly people find life, evil people find death. And it can be easy to read Proverbs and say, well, yeah, but uh, welcome to the real world. It's not exactly like that, right? You, you look around, you read the newspapers. Uh, sometimes death and trouble come early for good, good and wise people. 
And sometimes it's the fools and the wicked uh, who thrive and who th- who succeed in the world. So I think that's why I think you mentioned a, m- a minute ago, it's so crucial to be clear on the fact that Proverbs are not promises from God about how things will always go. Uh, yeah. <laughs> They're good and smart and practical wisdom that reflect what's often true, but not always true. So it makes a lot of sense to follow them. It's always good to follow them, but they're not guarantees of how things will work out if and when you do follow them. And again, this gets back to the fact that the world is fractured and it doesn't work the way that the creator intended. And the entire story of the Bible is about God's ongoing work to overcome this rebellion and this fracturing. So the wisdom in the Bible has to account for the struggle, and it does. And we'll see that in just a second with our next two books. Um, so just a final word on Proverbs, I think, again, it's certainly good and helpful to embrace the wisdom of Proverbs, but our big takeaway here is that we need to have realistic expectations of the results. You know, they, they usually reflect the truth of how things go in this world, but we also need to not be surprised when the world's shadow darkens the light of wisdom. So the book of Ecclesiastes, to move on, takes a hard look at this shadow side of life. Not so fast it responds to the claims of Proverbs. It begins by asking, who's to say? I mean, it's a bold question right at the beginning of the book. Who's to say whether following wisdom really is the better course? The author of Ecclesiastes, who calls himself the teacher, tried wisdom on for size. He tested it to see if it really is a better way. There's a whole theme in Ecclesiastes about it being an experiential testing of different ways of living. And so the first one he talks about is trying on wisdom. Sure, he says, it seems better at first. Wisdom is the light, and to live foolishly is to walk in the darkness. But then he says, consider this. Don't the wise person and the fool both die? So what's the big advantage? They both come to nothing in the end. So the teacher says death is kind of the great leveler of all this. And what does it even come to? And then he goes on and says, and not only that, even within life, it's hard to say that wisdom and righteousness is the better way. Because so much of life seems to be based on random events and things completely out of our control. Life is inscrutable and unpredictable in so many ways. It's filled with injustices, absurdities, impermanence. So the long-term achievements of hard work and perseverance can be quickly lost by disasters and the poor stewardship of others. So life, I mean, there's death that kind of takes away this big advantage to wisdom. And life has these other things going on that kind of get in the way of us following wisdom and getting good results. So that's how the book starts off. It's a pretty bold challenge. I mean, the reality, if if you read these two books side by side, which which we should do. We should read them in juxtaposition. It's a little bit of whiplash. Mm. It really is. So one is so very yeah. certain and the other is, is, you know, quite, quite obscure. And it's kind of like Solomon is saying, here's one side of the coin, you know, the book of Proverbs, and you should pay attention. And not only pay attention, you should seek this. You should go after this like there's no tomorrow. But this coin has has a second side. And I think we should say that if, if uh, you know, 
we're only touting proverbs, we're going to come across as as naive and simplistic. And Uh honestly, people that can't be taken seriously. And we know people like that, you know, in the world. And and I think they misrepresent the scriptures. So um, Ecclesiastes is a song of meaningless. It's a song that says, take off the rose colored glasses, look at the world um, as it is with chronic disease, with mental illness, with, with random accidents. And so um, this is the world, the real world that we live in. And at times it feels like we're chasing the wind. Um, so many things are wrong that they can't be made right. This is a Humpty Dumpty world. Is this just one big cosmic joke? I heard um, a well-known Christian leader say that uh, publicly after a kind of a personal disaster. And there's so many things that are just missing that can't be found. And Solomon says it's wearisome. It, it wears you out. And uh, through the years, people have tried everything. And it sometimes just, again, seems like a puzzle with so many missing, missing pieces. But the teacher says, you know, Solomon says, um, I've been gifted with, with great wisdom. He's quite open about that, maybe more than anybody before me. And he says, but what good did it do me? And I can tell you this, that being aware of all of these realities just made me sadder. It filled me with grief and uh, all of my knowledge and learning uh, and seeing things clearly made me question whether there's really meaning in life. And I think one of my favorite statements that that Solomon makes, which kind of encapsulates this, uh, this is in what would be chapter 10. He says, I have seen slaves on horseback while princes go on foot like slaves. So the guy that ought to be on the horse um, is walking and the guy that's walking, you know, should be on the horse. You know, the guy who should be the boss isn't the boss. And we just see so many examples of that. So anyhow, um, Ecclesiastes tells us that, you know, wisdom, hard work, hard-earned money, um, even, you know, planned pleasure. None of it really works as an answer to the really big questions and meaning of life. And that this fracture of the world pervades everything. And it undermines everything. And there is no 10-step plan that will, will remove that reality. And so the teacher forces us to face the truth that the creational foundations of embedded wisdom in the world just aren't enough. Wisdom proverbs aren't enough. And this infection that's in the world and the fact that everything ends in death, um, these two realities at times seem to overwhelm uh, wisdom itself. Yeah, that's right. It's super depressing. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I, I've, I've just picked up the book of Ecclesiastes before and tried to read it all in one sitting. And I finished and I'm like, all right, time to go get a gallon of ice cream and like a party size bag of Cheetos <laughs> and binge Netflix for a while because like it's all meaningless, right? Um, so I think, you know, in light of that, Ecclesiastes does still have a bit of a takeaway. And I think it comes in the form of two basic conclusions 
And the first is that since the world is the way that it is, we should maybe embrace kind of a mild form of existentialism. So receive God's good gifts when they come. Do what you can with wisdom and hard work. Find enjoyment when and where you can. And he says, there's nothing better than to enjoy food and drink and find satisfaction in work. These pleasures are from the hand of God. So that's one of the conclusions I think that we can take away from this. The second is maybe a little bit more ultimate. I think the teacher says this life under the sun may seem pointless in the end, given the inevitability of death. But take note, the creator still sees that all that sees all that we do. And the results might not be all that you hope for in this life, but God's going to bring everything into the light. And so we need to continue to do what's right and be wise and follow the creator's instructions because we will be held accountable for what we do in this life under the sun. So we see how the teacher ends up looking beyond this life and its temporary confusion and chaos to a day when all this stuff will get sorted out, when it will get brought to the light. And we need to keep in mind that there is a creator and we still do owe him our loyalty and our, our service in the midst of all this craziness. Mm, wow. Okay. So two parts of the conversation and now the third one kind of comes into view. So we have a point and a counterpoint. Ecclesiastes does push back against the straightforward perspective of Proverbs the teacher says that the results of living wisely don't quite measure up to the formula that Proverbs claims. Um, and we should remember, and when I say Proverbs claims, it really means I think everybody in Israel would have understood that these are the way the world usually goes, not absolute promises. So it was never intentional in Proverbs in the first place to make these the promises of God, for example. But notice that in the end, Ecclesiastes still does affirm wisdom. It just kind of gets there by a different route than Proverbs, not because there's any guarantee of good results, but because they're still the creator and ruler over all things. So accountability means that wisdom still matters. So they kind of end in the same place via different routes, if you will. Um, but there's more to this conversation. The book of Job introduces us to a character who is precisely the kind of person that Proverbs envisions. A wise man who honors and respects the Lord, enjoys the success of his wisdom. Job has daughters and sons. He has much wealth and the respect of his community. But then a series of catastrophes takes it all away. Job is left in poverty, suffering from disease, now badly disgraced in the eyes of everyone who knows him. Unknown to Job, there has been some negotiations going on in the heavenly council. Yahweh and the accuser, the Satan is called in the text, have been discussing Job. The accuser has been given free reign to ruin Job's life, and so he has. But that, of course, is unknown to Job about what's going on between Yahweh and the accuser. So that's the setup in the book. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the, the book of Job in many ways, is such an important book. It, it just legitimizes the fact that God really is, you know, a God of reality. Um, and we all know stories like this, and um, Job helps us make sense of them. I mean, I remember growing up, there was a family, and in a single year, the father um, was killed, hit by a drunk driver, changing a tire. Um, they had a mentally... Uh, 
challenged son who drowned and the oldest daughter who was a kind of an academic rock star was killed in that same year in a in a terrible um car accident and um without you know something like the book of job we might wonder you know is god really there and isn't he in touch with reality so you know here we come the setting is three of job's friends come to him in the middle of his disaster i say friends so-called friends and you know fortunately to their credit they do sit in sorrow with him for a week but then an intense uh, discussion ensues and the friends know they know that there must be something grievously wrong sinful in job's life causing this horrible misfortune to come upon him and so these are friends who have taken the wisdom of proverbs and hardened it into an absolute rule and in their very unbending moral universe again dualistic goodness always brings blessing and wrongdoing always ends up in punishment but job protests his innocence he knows his heart he knows he hasn't strayed from the creator's ways and he vigorously presents his case to his friends and uh, demands to take his defense to god so all of this sets the stage for a lengthy heated debate and what we can know about god and how he deals with with the world and as we've said before some of this poetry um, and it's presented in poetic form these were you know literary ninjas it's amazing um, literature, but um, according to the Bible's wisdom premise, God has placed order into the world and we can know it and follow it. But what happens when our explanations for the moral order fail and that poetic debate goes deep and it goes on and on? Yeah, that's right. It is, I, I would say, a long debate. And at times it feels like it's running in circles a little bit until God himself, Yahweh himself, enters the conversation. And the first thing that he does is he takes Job on this crazy tour of the creation, kind of up into the stars, down into the seas, yeah. kind of top to bottom. Um, and now it's God's turn to ask the questions. So he asks things like, you know, where were you, Job, when I created everything? Do you know about all the detailed affairs of the cosmos? Do you see everything? Do you understand everything? Like, are you actually in a position to question my judgment and my goodness and my righteousness? So God declares his power and his mastery over the created order. And he doesn't defend what's happened to Job. He simply says that he alone knows the whole story and understands and sees the big picture. So in the end, he doesn't try to defend or account for himself. He, he says he's not answerable to us. Um, so then at the same time, though, he doesn't condemn job either he just humbles him and puts him in his proper place job is shown to be in the right about his moral status i think the like you said the straightforward rigid rules of his friends paul are proven to be incorrect he didn't commit some great sin that caused all the suffering in his life um and and so the moral certainties of his friends were wrong and they didn't speak for god or for the foundations of god's wisdom so Again, this third, third perspective on wisdom and living the good life in the world, they each seem to be saying something different. So how do these all come together to make 
any semblance of sense of things like where are we at guys can you can you help me kind of come to a conclusion here yeah okay so so we gave kind of a flyby tour of these three books right very quick um but the sum of the matter seems to be something like this god is a moral god and he has placed his wisdom his order right into the fabric of the world there is much to learn from this wisdom and we do well to follow it but the disruption in the creation is significant. The fallen members of the Heavenly Council do have real power to cause harm and hurt in the cause of good. The powers are real. And I would just reference, I don't know the episode mem- number, but I do think it's interesting to me how this point ties into our previous discussion we've had on this podcast about the role of the powers in the story of the Bible, which mm-hmm. I think is underplayed by many Christians and many Christian leaders. And we just don't hear enough about that. And it's significant. And obviously it's significant here in the story of Job. So there's this real disruption in the creation. So the point is, I think wisdom is wisdom. And it really does have an important role to play in our lives. But we can't make it formulaic. The battle against evil is big and deep. We can't see and know all that is going on. So what we really need, I think, putting all three of the pieces of biblical wisdom together is wisdom with humility, to follow the good path with the understanding that it is no guarantee for the results. And I think that's what Ecclesiastes um, calls out. And in, in many ways, Solomon is somewhat dualistic in Ecclesiastes because he, he looks at the world through a short-term lens and a long-term lens. And the short-term lens is that everything is fragile, that life is hard, and, uh, and the world is cold. The long-term lens is that um, the creator still owns the ending of the story. And it, it's interesting, you know, people that lived in that day, they were kind of living in the middle of our, our story. And those who were followers of Yahweh, I think they came away reading these wisdom books with the understanding that God will make all things right in the end. And they were banking on like all of these names of God that assured that God was mighty and powerful and the God of, you know, heaven's armies. That was the assurance that God would make things um, right in the end. What they didn't know and that we are privy to know is because living uh, on the other side of Jesus, uh, his death and his resurrection, you know, we now know that um, he is the king and that he is on his throne and he is fighting against all that does not go well and he is working. And uh, the ending of his work will bring healing and restoration. And this, you know, ultimately is, is the way of wisdom. And so in the meantime, though, um, you know, how are we to live? And I think, again, Proverbs says, follow this path. And, you know, if we left with the impression that Proverbs shouldn't be taken seriously, and it doesn't really matter because, you know, nothing works perfectly, it works a lot better. <laughs> we're following these proverbs than if we don't if you're in the midst of turmoil it's good that you're on the path of of the wisdom that 
Solomon outlines. And then how do, how do we live in this world? I mean, I think, Alex, I loved the statement. Um, we may get some people that write in on that, that there's a form of Christianity that is a mild form of existentialism. <laughs> but, it, right. but it is. It's good. There's much good in the world. I think is one of the things that Solomon says, and God gives us all of these things richly uh, to enjoy. And so while we wait for the end of the story, and it's a magnificent ending, there are paths on which we can walk today. Yeah. Yeah. yeah if I can just insert one more comment, Paul, your, your comments made me just think of something just right now. And that is, um, I've been reading a lot of laments in the Psalms over the last year. It's really become something I've wanted to go more deeply into. And it's interesting to me how many of the laments in Psalms relate to this point of this three-point conversation in the wisdom books, hmm. right? I mean, I think there was a theology in Israel, which we can see clearly, for example, at the end of the book of Deuteronomy and the blessings and curses passage. It's also at the end of the book of Leviticus that this is for Israel as a whole. If you follow my ways, here's the way in which I will bless you. If you don't follow my ways, here's the way that's going to undo you um, in all kinds of ways. And all those blessings and curses have to do with life in the world now. They're not ultimate kind of after death kinds of things. They're about, look, if you want to live well in this world, follow my ways and my blessing will follow you. And then you have all these Psalms of laments where people are complaining all the time saying, God, we're doing this. I'm doing this. And look what's happened in my life. It's a disaster. They're trying to kill me. Right. My enemies are trying to undo me. I'm I've been shamed publicly and they're challenging this kind of fundamental covenant theology in Israel. And so I, I, what you said, Paul, I think is really true. Like we need the New Testament to kind of work this out ultimately, because there's this, there is this protest element within the Hebrew Bible, the First mm. Testament that says, okay, we know the standard line and we're not questioning it overall, but in the immediate term, in the short term, this is not working out. So like we're hoping there's a better longer term answer. And I think both Ecclesiastes and Job point us toward that longer term answer when the short term answer of Proverbs doesn't happen. And then, of course, as you said, you get to the New Testament, you get to the work of Jesus, the Messiah, and suddenly we see that there is a bigger ending. There is a resolution. There is a making things right. And I think the wisdom books in the First Testament are kind of yearning for this longer term answer. And that's exactly what we find in the New Testament story of Jesus. So yeah, that's, that's yeah. the way it works. I think. Yeah. I love that. It's, mm. it's super helpful. Just this, this interplay between these three books that we went over, but then how it bleeds into other parts of both the old and the, in the New Testament. Um, it shows that the Bible is a book that deals with the complexities of real life. And it avoids the overly simplistic approach, I think, that many Christians have today of just read the Bible, do what it says. It's not that hard. Yeah. Um, right. like the Bible <laughs> itself says that there's there's different things simultaneously going on here. And it offers different perspectives on wisdom and the good life in, in God's creation. So it just makes the Bible a more interesting 
collection of books, I think, that's just honest mm-hmm. about real life. So at the same time, though, I think, like we, we said a minute ago, it's sort of like three individual notes coming together to make a chord, right? Like independently, they all make a certain sound, but when you put them all together in conversation with each other, it's um, they come together to form one nice sound, which is um, to uh, trust in the creator and, and his work in the proper way forward. So I think, um, I think it's been helpful for me even to just record this podcast and discuss this. And hopefully it's been helpful uh, for our listeners as they dive into those three books and, and kind of see how they play amongst themselves in the, in the sandbox and, uh, and get, get some coherent takeaways, I would say from, from reading all three. So as always, the Bible Reset Podcast is brought to you by Changemakers, our community of donors who give monthly gifts of any amount to help us create resources that change the way people read the Bible. If you appreciate this podcast and you'd like to support our work, you can learn more at instituteforbiblereading.org slash changemakers. That's going to do it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next one. Thank you.